I've had many privileges in my life. In over six decades, I've been blessed with so many different things. A few academic, and I emphasize few, awards over the years. An assistant pastor at a large church in Southern California. Senior pastor for 40 years, almost 40 years, of the most amazing group of people on the face of this earth. An author. Spoken thousands of times, both here in America and abroad. But I can tell you, without a doubt that the greatest legacy I will leave will be that of a husband and a father and a parent. Because as a father and a parent and a husband, those are the kind of things that will make such a huge impact, long-lasting impact, far beyond anything else I might do in the ministry. The night our first child was born, Luke, I got on my knees and I thanked God for the blessed privilege of being a parent. I felt so, so just uh, honored that God would entrust me with a life. And over and again, the Lord allowed me that privilege. Being a parent is an amazing privilege. One of my favorite verses is in Psalm 112, verse 1. Psalm 112 and verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. His seed, children, shall be mighty upon the earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Hands down, the most powerful, influential people on earth do not occupy elected offices run industries or control Wall Street. The most influential people are parents. And more specifically, they are parents of faith. Faithful families that raise mighty seed. This morning I'm going to preach about a couple of parents, Amram and Jacobed. Now you may not uh, recognize those names, but when God decided to make up a list in the Bible, which has been called the who's who of the Bible, it's found in Hebrews chapter 11, when God decided to make a list of all the people who just really stood out, he pointed out this particular couple. Although not by name, he said who they were. Now you certainly know their son. He was a man who changed the destiny of the people of Israel. He was one who stood up against the wicked regime of Pharaoh. Yes, Amram and Jochebed were the parents of Moses. And the Bible tells us three qualities about their life. And that's what I'm going to share with you this morning, the Lord's will. But, you know, as we begin here this morning, you know, sometimes these dedication services can uh, lend us some interesting moments. Anytime it let children say something or others, but uh, there was a young family that was driving away from church. They had just dedicated uh, the little baby, little Johnny, the older brother, cried all the way home in the back seat of the car. His mother asked him again and again, what is wrong? Three times over and over. Finally, the boy replied, 
Mommy, Daddy, the pastor said he wanted us to be brought up in a Christian home, but I want to stay with you guys. There we go. Well, I hope that you have a Christian home because today I believe God is going to give us uh, great qualities of a godly home. Let's all bow our heads for a prayer, if you would, please. Father, we do want to be raised in a Christian home. Lord, we want to make a difference. And I pray that today, Lord, there'll be just a sweet spirit, that Holy Spirit, you'd come in here and just meet with us today. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would, please. And we're going to read this out loud. And uh, the first couple of verses here, of 23 and 24, Hebrews chapter 11. This is the who's who of the Bible. The book of Hebrews was written by an unknown apostle, likely the apostle Paul. And the Holy Spirit inspired him to say these words. Let's read verse 23 and verse 24 together, if you would, out loud. Ready, begin. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, I want you to look at verse 23 to begin. Notice what it says in the first part there. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. Now, while the Bible says it, by faith, Moses, actually, it wasn't his faith at that moment that was being engaged. It was that of his parents. It was his parents who, by faith had uh, hid their son. So really what it's talking about in verse 23 is the faith of his parents. Now in verse 24, notice what it says, by faith Moses, when he was come to years. When he was come to years. I'm not sure exactly how long that is, when he was maybe uh, 12, or maybe he was in the, uh, more in the youth, or maybe he was just later than that. But whatever the case, it says, by faith, Moses. Now it's his faith. The faith of his parents now is transferred to him, and he is standing for righteousness. And so by faith, Moses' parents, in verse 23, and by faith, now transferred to Moses, in verse 24. Amram and Jochebed are the parents of Moses. Now, we uh, were told a few years ago here in America by one of our leaders that it takes a village to raise a child. But with all due respect, they have that backwards. It takes a family to raise a child, and it's the family that changes the village. And I've said so much that it is strong Christians who make strong churches, and strong churches make for a strong nation. And that's what we're here today to do, is to remind ourselves that families that are full of faith are world changers. I am telling you, and you know this to be true, that the devil has unleashed all of his artillery of hell against the family in this year. It has been such an unbelievable years of change over the last decade. And today, in 2017, we are attacked as never before. But Amram and Jochebed were faithful. 
They were faithful in the midst of decadent times. They were faithful in the midst of difficult times. They had a home of faith. They were full of faith. And that's what we get the name of our title this morning, Faithful Christians. Now, now I want you to notice three actions about the qualities of this family. Number one, the action of their faith. The action of their faith. We know they were full of faith, but what does that mean? First of all, they had action. Let's what it says in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. Now, the historical record in the book of Exodus records that only his mother uh, was there helping the child, and we did hear about Miriam. We hear nothing of the father. And yet here in this verse, it says he was hid of the parents, both the parents, a mom and a dad, a male and a female. And I want to say here at the home church, and I think it's important to publicly and very clearly uh, declare that the best family plan is the Bible plan. And the Bible plan is God's plan. And what plan is that? It is one man and one woman for one lifetime. Not one man and one man for one lifetime or whatever, or one woman and one woman for one lifetime. It is one man, one woman, married, not just living together, but married. That's God's plan. That is the Bible plan. That's the best plan, a covenant marriage. And Amram and Jochebed had that kind of a marriage. They didn't just sit around and say, well, you know, we believe in God. No, they did something about it. They were full of action. Notice what it says here. They hid their son. They hid him. Jesus in the New Testament said that those people who have a kingdom kind of mindset, he said they put their shoulder to the plow and they don't look back. These folks did just that. They put their shoulder to the plow and they said, we've got 20 years here or whatever to raise this son of ours and we're going to do our best. And so they had already been doing their best to raise Aaron and Miriam and now they have Moses and they are going to do their best. Solomon said this in chapter 22 of the book of Proverbs, he said, train up a child in the way he should go. Train up a child. Get them when they're children and train them. Not just teach them, but train them. There's a difference between teaching and training. Teaching is certainly good, but training means to drill something, to prepare for a contest. When you train for something, athletes train for a race or they train for some big game. Now, teaching is good, but someone else can come along and teach them, and they might weigh the facts and weigh the facts of their parents, and, you know, they kind of choose. But when you train them, training is just engrafting the Word of God's into their, just embedding it into their very spiritual heart. It's more than lecturing. It is praying. It is leading by example. It is saying, I'm going to be there with them. It means, for example, being actively involved in a Bible-believing church. It means doing what we can to teach them the Bible even on our own. There's many ways to do that, but 
just a few days a week or every day of the week, simply take a few minutes and pray with your children, read a verse to them, maybe say what you think it means, and then send them out into that day. But every day they know that we love the Bible in this family. We honor God's plan of a Bible-believing church. Are your children consistently under the godly training of good teachers, godly teachers and preachers? You know, I am so amazed how often some people will take their children, send them all the way across the country to some college, and yet won't even drive a few miles to take them to church. I know we're kind of out here in the country, and sometimes people have said, well, so far, I'm thinking so far from Lodi, five minutes, or so far from Stockton. We even had one person, several people over the years said, man, you have to go up there and make a U-turn. I thought, oh my goodness, isn't that something? (laughs) Suffering for Jesus, you got to go up and make a U-turn to get to the church. But I tell you one thing, it's a fact, sad fact, that some people spend more time training their dog than they do their children. That's a sad fact of our country. But if we want our children to be delivered from the offers of the pharaohs of this world, we have to have action. Amram and Jochebed, these folks made a difference. They got involved in their son's spiritual life and said, we know that the best thing we can do is to give him a good spiritual training. It has been said that to fail to plan is really simply to plan to fail. And these folks, they planned to make a difference in the life of their child. I read something recently that I want to share with you. I thought it was just amazing, especially in the light of coming from where it came from. And that is the Houston Police Department put out a list of 12 rules for raising a juvenile delinquent. Of course, you'll appreciate the satire a little bit, but the Houston Police Department put this out. Let me give them to you. Number one, begin in infancy to give the child everything he wants, especially, of course, if he cries. Number two, when he picks up bad words, laugh at him. It'll make him think he's cute. Number three, don't give him any spiritual training. Wait until he's 18 and then let him decide for himself. Number four, avoid the use of negative words like no. They might develop a guilt context in his mind, which will condition him to believe later that when he is arrested for stealing a car, that society is against him and actually he's just being profiled. Number five, pick up everything he leaves around. Do everything for him so he'll be experienced at throwing all responsibility onto others. Number six, let him read any printed matter, have any electronic device he can get his hands on, but make sure that your house is clean so that he can feast on the garbage. Number seven, quarrel frequency and the frequently in the presence of your child. This way, he'll not be too shocked when the home was broken up later. Number eight, give your child all the spending money he wants. Never make him earn his own money. Number nine, satisfy his every craving for food, drink, and comfort. See that every sensual desire is gratified. After all, denial might lead to harmful frustration. Number 10, make sure you take his part against any neighbor, teacher, church leader, or policeman. After all, they're just prejudiced against your child. Number 11, when he gets into real trouble, blame the school. They ignored his problems. And number 12, sadly, 
but accurately prepare for a life of grief because you're apt to have it. Never in the history of America have we had so many people, so many pampering parents. They have done everything they can do to go to the little leagues and the soccer games. They have gone to every recreation department, spending thousands of dollars on everything in the world, and yet neglect the spiritual training. Folks, that is not the answer. To raise up mighty seed, we need to have people who make a difference and say, we're going to take an action. We're going to be proactive about spiritual training. Notice the action of their faith. Number two, notice the aim of their faith. The second part of verse 23 says this, by faith when Moses was born, he was hid three months of his parents because they saw. They saw something. He was a proper child. They looked at that little baby and they said, this is a proper child. Now, you'd say, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's some King's English there. I'll grant you that. And I'm sure that to some degree it meant uh, the normal and natural parental affection that any parent looks at their child and uh, says. Uh, My uh, dad used to tell me, uh, and some of you old timers will laugh at this, uh, I didn't really know about it then, I still don't, but my dad used to tell me that he broke my mom's heart when I was born because, you know, I had a bald head and looked kind of funny. And he said, honey, he looks like Chester Gump. And, uh, but uh, apparently that was some comic character back then. But, um, you know, some babies, uh, all babies are cute, except for those who look like Chester Gump. And, uh, but I think what he's meaning here, what scripture is meaning in Exodus chapter two and verse two, it says it this way, he was a goodly child. So in Hebrews 11, it calls him a proper child. In Exodus chapter two, it calls him a goodly child. And in Acts chapter 17, 17 or seven, um, seven, in Acts chapter seven, uh, it uh, called him exceedingly fair. Maybe that word exceedingly fair gives us the most accurate definition of what they saw in Moses. Because the word exceedingly fair is the Greek word theoastai, and theo meaning God, astai meaning uh, fair, so, uh, or beautiful. And the, the thought would be that he was beautiful to God, or he had a godly countenance. There was just something about the child. We're told in Scripture that uh, Jesus uh, leapt in the womb, and we're told about John the Baptist having a filling of the Spirit. We're talking, and the Bible talks about Timothy even from the womb, and there's something about an anointing that comes even on unborn babies, and certainly upon children. Here's what I really think it means. I believe that uh, the countenance of Moses was beaming with a godly sense that God had a plan for this life. Somehow the parents just looked at that child and they said, God has a plan for this child. We just sense it. We know it. I know that so often parents can just get a sense of what God has for that child. Amram and Jochebed looked at their child and they said, God has a destiny, a godly destiny for my child. Now I know we can't create their destiny But I'm sure we can influence their destiny by looking at them and saying, I've got to aim for them. I've got a desire to make them like Christ. And so the first thing that they had was action. 
They did something. They, they were proactive about protection. They were proactive about not only the negative, but about the positive. Let's give them some godly teachers, and let's put the Bible into this child. And then they had an aim. They said, we're going to serve God. We're going to put our faith in God. I mean, they didn't equivocate. They didn't say, well, maybe we'll serve God or you know, we don't want to be too gung-ho. We don't want to be crazy. But no, they were, they were serious about their faith. And as a result of that, Moses grew up with an opportunity to make a difference. Thank God for children who get the opportunity to grow up. Now, our, my child may not be a Moses, but God has a special and unique gift and a special and unique destiny for every child. Even sometimes we think, oh, boy, I'm not sure about this one, but you know, God has a very definite aim for them. I remember reading in Jeremiah chapter 1 where Jeremiah said, God made my tongue a sharpened tongue, and he called me from the womb. I've often thought, hmm, some sharp-tongued little children, you know, may grow up to be a preacher like Jeremiah. But, you know, God has a unique uh, venture for every person, as long as they get a chance to have an opportunity to do so. Dr. Eli Agnew of UCLA Medical School asked his students this question. He said, I want to give you a case study. I want you to decide, here he is, professor at UCLA Med School, Dr. Askew. He said, I want to give you a question. Here's the family history. The father has syphilis, the mother has diperculosis. They've already had four children. The first one blind, second one died, third is deaf, the fourth has tuberculosis. The mother is pregnant with a fifth child. You decide what should they do. Should they abort the child? Most of the students of that class of UCLA voted that the parents should have an abortion. Just too many issues. Dr. Agnew said, well, congratulations, students. You have just murdered Ludwig van Beethoven. Because that is the very situation that Beethoven was born into. Thank God he got a chance to become a person of destiny. And that's what we ought to give them. It's certainly an aim for their life is to give them a chance. I believe God has a plan for every life. And here at the home church, we're standing today for the fact of traditional values, of biblical values. And certainly, we are standing against the Holocaust of abortion the action of their faith, the aim of their faith, and then finally, the audacity of their faith. These folks were just serious about God. Notice the last part of verse 23. So the first part says, when he was born, they hid him. They took action. The second part of the verse says, they saw he was a proper child. He had a he had a godly countenance about him. They sensed a calling on his life, and they said, we're going to make that happened. And third, they were serious, audacious in their faith. They were not afraid of the king's commandment. And I will tell you, you cannot be a fearful parent of what the neighbors are going to think, or what the extended family are going to think, or what the school will think. You have to be able to be the kind of a parent that says, I'm more concerned about what God thinks. That's what I'm concerned about. Jochebed and Amram, they knew that if Pharaoh got his way and if all the males of Israel were killed, that was what the, uh, that was what the law that had gone out was, 
that there would be no way that Israel could continue. It would cease to be a nation. They knew that their, what they were going to do for their son was important for the nation as well as for their family. They knew the king's command was contrary to the laws of God. They were under no obligation to obey it. In fact, they were under every obligation to stand wisely against it. It took great courage for them. But you know, those kind of days are the kind of days we're facing as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, In the last days, know this, perilous times shall come. Perilous times. And I will tell you that it was a, must have been a dangerous, terrible, perilous time in Moses' day. But I will tell you, it is equally perilous today. We have a society that is completely given over to every kind of a perversion, a breakdown of moral value, drugs, alcoholism, humanism taught in schools. The list is endless. But I will tell you, we must not be afraid of what people think or the king's commandment. We need to stand for God as never before. Many people believe, many wise people, many godly wise people believe that our country today it has, is, is at a point that it's never been. It is really as what some are calling a tipping point. You know, when we built these buildings, I, in the first couple of buildings, I was able, first, especially this building, did a lot of the work and spent several days a week uh, in the construction. And one of the things we had to learn to do was to move an extension ladder, not one of those little short step ladders, but an extension ladder. Those are the kind that are really tall. It's hard to put those down and then back up by yourself. So the best way to do it is to learn to walk along, you know, and that's the way you do it because putting it down, putting it back up is really challenging. And so you walk along with this thing. Well, I found out pretty soon that it, you had to be very careful because if that thing got just a little over past the tipping point, you weren't going to be able to muscle it back. Once it hit that tipping point, it was going to go. And when that extension ladder falls, it's a big old racket. It destroys things. It's terrible. Tipping points. I will tell you that many people, wise people, godly people believe that America is really at a tipping point over the next four to five years. Many believe by 2025, America will be at a crossroads, a precipice that we've never been at before. I tend to agree with them. When, they, when you consider the agendas of many immoral people, like the homosexual agenda, when you consider the rapid rise of Islam, radical Islam in America, you know, in uh, Belgium, we visited there, almost one-fourth of all people now uh, register as Islamic people. It is changing the face of that uh, European nation. You know, people say, oh, well, that's Europe. I will tell you, thank God for someone in the White House that's trying to kind of slow that down. But I will tell you, who knows what's going to happen next. If that Islamic uh, force just comes flooding into America, it is a tipping point. There, is a, there, there needs to be a generation of people who will risk everything for the gospel's sake. I read recently about one of the martyrs of the faith. In 1546, Anne Askew was imprisoned and tortured in England because of her faith. They stretched her on a rack. They pulled her bones and joints uh, apart. And then, then they're going to put her at the stake to burn her. But they couldn't, she couldn't walk to the stake, 
So they literally carried her in a chair to the stake. At that point, they offered a pardon if she would simply recant. And here's the words. I thought it was so amazing. Here this amazing woman said, I did not come here to deny my Lord and my master. Faithful. I did not come here to deny. I came here to make a stand. And that's what Amram and Jochebed did. They had action. They said, we're going to do something about it. We're going to put them in a Christian school, or we're going to keep them in a Bible-believing church, and we're going to have family Bible time, and our home is going to be a God-fearing home. Then they were people who had a goal. They said, you know what? We're going to be a spiritually-minded, godly family. And then finally, they were people who were different. They said, we're willing to stand for God no matter who else does. Vance Havner the old Southern Baptist evangelist said this, Moses chose the imperishable and saw the invisible and did the impossible. In Moses, God found a man that could stand up against the most powerful dictator of the day. Where did Moses get that kind of faith? He got it from Amram and Jochebed. That's They instilled in that young man such a, such a power. They knew that God had a plan for his life. They were a faithful family. And what's my challenge this morning? My challenge this morning is that you would be a faithful family, full of faith, standing for God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning.